0: Amen. If you would, please turn to the book of Psalms. And we are in Psalm 8 this morning. Psalm 8, pick it up in verse 1. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth! You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. This is the word of the Lord. God, we come before you this morning, and God, we ask that you may help us to continue to worship your glorious name now as we sit under your divinely inspired word. Father, I pray that I, as I walk through this passage that this may be an act of worship to you. Father, we pray that as your people sit and listen to your word, that this would also be an act of worship unto you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We open up the scriptures for many different reasons, whether it's in our personal times at home or whether it's like in this moment on a Sunday morning service where we open the scriptures to, to study the word, to know more about God so that we may increase in in holiness and Christ-likeness, so that we understand and know, so that we may perhaps gain greater understanding and wisdom that comes from the Scriptures. Another reason why we open the Scriptures is to worship. God has made it so that the primary way that we come to worship Him is through what He has revealed to us in His Word. A few months ago, Barna conducted a research about how often or how regularly Christians open up the scriptures outside of church events, that is, including the Sunday morning service. They say that amongst American Christians, Bible users and Bible users, they define as anyone who opens up the scriptures at least three to four times a year. I know, interesting. But according to their research, they came to the conclusion that only about 11% of all those who consider themselves Bible users open up the Scriptures every day. 9% open up the Scriptures once a week or two to three times per week. Now, my point is not to encourage us or exhort us to read the Bible on a more frequent basis, though I would definitely encourage you to do that. But my point in bringing out this research to you is with regards to worship. You see, because if we are not opening the Scriptures as often as we should, that means we're not engaging in worship of the worship of God as often as we should. And worship, I like how Pastor John Piper defines worship, worship is seeing and savoring the worth of God. So worship isn't always singing, though that is part of worship. But worship is when we see from the scriptures, when we see who God is, when we understand who He is and we are drawn to Him and we see His magnificent worth. That is an act of worship. When we come to Psalm 8, Psalm 8 has very little to do with us. You'll find in the psalm, you won't find in the psalm an explicit command you'll find that it isn't giving us maybe a a godly example to follow. It's not giving us a negative example to follow, or to learn from, sorry. It's not giving us this this explicit imperative. But I would propose to you that the subject of the psalm is God, and that the aim of the psalm is to worship the psalm is written as a reflection, I think is intended to cause us to worship God. So there is, if there is any kind of imperative or command in the passage, it is to worship God. And so in the psalm, I see three, at least three different reasons why we are called to worship God. We worship God because His glory is set in the heavens. We worship God because of His mindfulness of man. And we worship God because of His crowning of man. So first, we worship God for his glory established. The psalm begins by saying, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all of the earth. It begins with worship. A worship of the, maj- of the majestic name of God. A name that is above all names. A name that speaks to his rank, to his nobility. A name that surpasses all in the earth. And it's talking about the name. And I don't know if you've ever thought about it before, but this is actually quite common in the scriptures, where there's a worship of God for His name. I mean, sometimes on Sunday mornings, we worship God, and the lyrics tells us we worship Him for His name. What is exactly What does it mean to worship God for His name? Or worship the name of God? So let's talk about that for a moment. In Exodus chapter 3, God has this, exchanged this conversation with Moses where he is commissioning Moses to go down to his people who are in slavery in Egypt and proclaim God's coming deliverance. And in that conversation, Moses says to God in Exodus 3.13, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God says to Moses, I am who I am. Interestingly, God does not give to Moses a name like what you and I are familiar with. He says to him, I am. And in addition, says, say to them, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Right? This is my name forever and to be remembered throughout all generations. If you look at your Bible, and I'm not sure if all translations have this, but when you read that first verse and it says, O Lord, it's all capitalized. And then the second, when it says, Our Lord, that's not all capitalized. That is the English translation's attempt to make a, distin- to make a distinction that is there in the original Hebrew text. An equivalent, And we don't have an equivalent to that in the English language. And so the first Lord there is speaking to the divine name of God Yahweh, and the second Lord there is Adonai, which is where we get the name Lord. Now in the scriptures you'll also find another another word for God, and that is Elohim. Elohim is often identified as, or it's used for identifying other gods, the gods of the pagan nations, the uh, the idolaters' practices. God oftentimes is considered as Elohim, but the Elohim of all Elohim, or the God of all gods. In Exodus 33, verse 19, in another conversation between God and Moses, God requests, or Moses requests, that God show him his glory. God, let me see your glory. And this is how God responds. In Exodus thirty-three nineteen, he says, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. Verse Chapter 34, verse 6, he continues, The Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers, of the children, and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. So in answer to Moses' request, God lets him see just a little bit of his glory. He hides Moses behind a rock, but part of his revealing of His glory, is proclaiming His name and making His goodness pass before Him. And God's name, His Yahweh name, comes from the Hebrew of I Am. And this I am, and even though it isn't like a name, like how we are identified as a name, it's not like the name that we give our children that oftentimes have some special significance or meaning, or even in the scriptures when there is a special significance or special meaning or an event or something that God did to sort of uh, determine what the child's name will be, right? God doesn't have that kind of name. God doesn't give Moses that kind of name. He just simply says, I am. Instead, he gives him a verb He says, I am is my name. And even though that might seem like it doesn't tell us a whole lot, it actually tells us a great deal. It tells us many things about God. It tells us that God is self-sufficient, that God is self-satisfied, that God is self-existent, that God is also self-sustaining. No other creature, no other human being in the planet can say those things about themselves in the truest sense of those words. The divine name of God communicates to us that God always was, always is, and always will be. The name of God reveals to us that God is the covenant keeper, that God is a faithful God, that that God is a God of steadfast love and faithfulness, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. That God is the God who is a deliverer of his people. John Calvin says that the name of God here is to be understood of the knowledge of the character and perfections of God insofar as he makes himself known to us. So this is why we worship the name of God. This is why we lift up our hearts to worship his glorious name. This is why the psalmist begins, how majestic is your name in all the earth? Because his name means a great deal and his name is a revelation of his person. And his person is worthy of our admiration and our praise. And it continues. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. That's a peculiar passage. And many people actually don't quite understand what it means that God establishes his strength To the mouth of babies and infants, there could be sort of a distinguish, kind of a something, a contrast rather that God, that the Swamis is making between the glory of God set in the heavens. It is set there. It is established. It cannot be moved. It cannot be diminished. It cannot be erased. It is always fixed. And God has His glory there, but also down here below, and together. Coming to the worship and the glorifying of God. The glory of God and the person of God are not two different things, but they're one and the same. The glory of God is the person of God, and the person of God is the glory of God. Psalm 113 4 shows us this that it says that the Lord is high above all nations, and his glory above the heavens. Now, the word glory, the original language, also means weight, as in, the, as in like weights that you might use in a gym. And what does that mean? Think of it this way. So Jeff Bezos, right, creator of Amazon, according to Google, Jeff Bezos, is net, his net worth is $150 billion. I mean, I can't even imagine that kind of money. billion is his net worth. That's $1.5 billion hundred dollar bills. And a hundred dollar bill weighs about one gram. So if you tally it up, his net worth in in pounds, how much would his net worth weigh? It would weigh 3.3 million pounds. When the passage, I think, is telling us, is teaching us about God is that God's glory is unsurpassable, that even the net worth of Jeff Bezos measured in pounds cannot even come close to the net worth of the weight of the glory of God. Now, interestingly, Jesus actually quotes. This passage in the New Testament in Matthew 26. In Matthew 26, in the context, in the context of Jesus at the temple, and he's many people, there's been miracles being performed, people are worshiping him, and then even children are worshiping the Lord Jesus, saying Hosanna to the son of David, a messianic identification. And then the religious teachers are saying, Do you hear what these are saying? Right To them, it's scandalous. But Jesus quotes this very song, but he says it differently. He says, Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established praise. Right, so even if you will not worship me, the children will worship me. Right, it's a joy. Even as I was driving here this morning and just listening to worship music, it is a joy. And if you're a parent, you know this as well. That it is a, such a great joy to hear your children Worshipping God to the same songs that you're worshiping to. The children, even if they don't understand and know, are giving glory to God. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, God has established praise. So even if the world will not praise God and worship Him because they are thankless, because they are faithless, because they do not want to follow the Lord and do not love the Lord, God still receives glory. Even through children, even through babies who are crying out. So praise the Lord. If you have an infant this morning and he or she starts crying out, hallelujah, they're praising God. The glory of God is set. So the question is, how's your worship? Has it been weak and cold lately? Has it been been kind of stagnant? Does it feel like sort of like like an ember that's dying out? God wants us to worship him. Not just to worship him, but have our hearts fully inclined, fully all in to the worship of Him because of who He is. So think of this morning as a glorious reset, that if you find yourself coming this morning and it's hard to engage in worship, reflect on the character of God, reflect on the name of God, that He is the covenant God, that He is the faithful God, that He is the merciful God, that He is the God who sent His Son to die on the cross for the salvation of sinners. And reflect on those truths and let that warm your hearts and incline your hearts to the worship of God. So we worship God because of His glory, which is established, and we worship God for His mindfulness of man. Psalm 8 continues When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon, and the stars which you have set in place, what is man? You are mindful of him, and the Son of Man, that you care for him. We ever found, find yourself just gazing up at the night sky. We ever just looked up and just noticed all the stars. I grew up in a city, so it's hard to see the stars, but living in New Hampshire, oh man on clear skies, you can see them so clearly, so wonderfully. Have you ever seen pictures online of different galaxies? Have you seen a picture of our particular galaxy? Have you seen that kind of, that, maybe some of you might know what I'm talking about, but a picture of our galaxy that shows a little tiny highlighted dot and an arrow pointing, hey, this is where Earth is. Have you ever seen pictures like that and come to feel a sense of, Finiteness, of a smallness, a sense of wow, like we are tiny in comparison to all of creation. I feel like this is what the psalmist is kind of feeling in that very moment when he wrote these words. NASA estimates that there are hundreds of billions of galaxies. The galaxy simply is composed of gas and dust and billions of stars, all gravitationally bound. And our galaxy is one of many, many upon many. And the surprise is that in such a massive universe that God takes a mindfulness towards man. The abolitionist John Newton once said that at one stage of his religious experience, he was greatly distressed, not with a fear of being punished for his sins, so much as with an apprehension that God would entirely overlook him. What is man, God, that you take a mindfulness towards him, that you even care for him? such a great question right who am i god that you should take notice of me apart from god right, there is no purpose apart from god there is no meaning to our life to our existence the movie Interstellar, the Cooper, one of the characters in the book, this is a time when kind of a dystopian future where all the Earth's natural resources are basically gone. There's one quote in the movie that says, we used to look up at the sky and wonder at our place in the stars, now we just look down and worry about our place in the dirt. The whole movie in a sense is sort of a, an, a, an a, a escapism, a way to find our place among the stars the scriptures teach us that there is no place for us in the stars, there is no place for us here on Earth, that there is no meaning out there or down here. While I love the, the interest in space exploration, with the three, I think three different spaceships or rocket ships that were created and launched into space, it's wonderful, it's great. Go out and search and explore, ask questions, answer those questions. But there is no meaning to our existence found here on earth nor out there. The meaning to our lives comes from a God who takes a mindful interest in you and me. God, as we read in the scriptures, takes a special interest in man. We read of a God who is a, who is a particular God who created everything, the universe, placed the earth in a particular galaxy with particular elements and details that sustains life that we don't see anywhere else, who created man in a particular way, who chose a particular man to covenant with that all the nations would be blessed through him, sent his own son into the world to die on the cross, for those who were chosen by God before the foundations of the world. The psalm is a reflection and part of a seemingly insignificance in comparison to all that there is in the world. And yet God taking a special interest in man, more than just an interest in man, we fast forward to the New Testament and we read in John three sixteen, for God so loved the world. That he gave his only son so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That God would show his love to a world filled with darkness, a, lo- a world that hated God. And that God would display his love by sending his own son. That anyone who believes in him might be spared of the judgment and wrath of God and might be saved and receive His mercy, receive His grace, and receive eternal life. If you're here this morning and you don't know the Lord Jesus, God has taken a special interest in you, just in you being here this morning, I don't believe it's an accident. God wants you here to hear the word, to hear the gospel. And God wants you to believe in the gospel message so that you may be a recipient of his love through Jesus Christ. Jonathan Edwards once said that, What an honor must it be to a creature who is infinitely below and less than he to be beautified and adorned with this beauty, which is the highest beauty of God himself, even or namely, holiness. Holiness. What an honor indeed. That God would take such a particular interest in you and me to send His Son to die for you and me so that He might beautify us, so that He may make us objects of His grace and divine favor, so that we may also share in His holiness. As things like this and generate our hearts to worship the Lord. O oh, Yahweh, our Adonai, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Yes, it is. Because you have taken a particular interest in us. You sent your Son to die for us. And even to this day, you continue to dispense your grace and mercy to us. You are worthy of our worship and our praise, O oh, great God. For this reason, we worship him. We worship him for his findfulness of man. And lastly, we worship God for his crowning of man. Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. So God has crowned man with a glory and an honor. Now this is, we talked about before, the glory of God has established above the heavens. A glory that is due to his name, to his person. Is this the same glory that he gives to us? It's so speaking about the same Glory. It's a different kind of glory. It is similar to Genesis forty five, thirteen, where Joseph says to his brothers, You must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt, and of all that you have seen, an honor that comes with his being in this position of being second only to Pharaoh, the head over all of Egypt. It is an honor that comes with responsibility and honor, that comes with authority that's speaking about here in the passage. That man is crowned with this particular responsibility. We see this in Genesis 1, where man is given this mandate to subdue all of the earth, to take dominion. And part of that dominion is to spread the fame of God over all the world, to spread His kingdom, to spread His glory all across the globe a mission at which we have failed miserably and still fail. Now, while yes, as men, we continue to take dominion over all things, but we do not, generally speaking, do it for the glory of God. Now, in Hebrews chapter 2, the author quotes this very passage. So I don't think I actually have it up to show you on the screen. So you can feel free to listen or turn there with me in Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. Verse five. It says, For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking, it has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the Son of Man that you care for him? You made him a little for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. I mean, putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control, speaking about man. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him, that is, Christ, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, In bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. So there is a crowning of man that is different than the crowning that the angels have. There's an authority that the angels have, and man was made lower than the angels, not in his ontology, not necessarily in his being, but in his responsibility, in his authority. The authority that God gave to man is an authority over all the earth. And we see the author of Hebrews applying this very passage to Jesus Christ, that Jesus, who is the Son of God, Jesus who is God, who came into the world as a human person, the full divinity of his person, encapsulated in this, in this flesh, which is a mystery all on its own. Right, You work that out in your own minds at your own time but in that sense, made even lower than the angels. But it tells us then that through his sacrifice on the cross, through his suffering, he would bring many sons to glory. That's part of the purpose of Jesus' redemption on the cross. That while man, yes, is crowned with a glory and honor that comes with a responsibility over all of creation, what we see from Hebrews 2.5 is also that there is a looking forward to a, a, a much better crowning, a glory and honor that we will share in the new heavens and in the new earth. And in that new earth, all things will be perfectly subjected under the, the authority of God through Jesus Christ. You see, when we look to the scriptures, the scriptures function as a mirror and they give us two reflections but we often see only one reflection. We look at the mirror, sometimes all we see is our sin. All we see is our shame. All we see is the bad we've done, that we may have done yesterday, or this morning. Things that we could have done differently. We have a tendency to see that reflection. But the mirror of the Word shows us a different reflection. It shows us the person that Jesus Christ sees. The one who has been redeemed the one who's been saved, the one who's been adopted as a child of the living God. But it also gives us a different reflection as well. It gives us a reflection of what we will be. And one day we will be filled with glory and honor that comes from gazing at the face of Jesus Christ. The Scriptures teaches us that the mercies of God are made new every single morning. What a wonderful promise that we need to be reminded of every single day, right? That every single day is sort of this new beginning. You may have had a messed up day yesterday. You may have done some things that were shameful. You may have done some things that required a lot of repentance. But you are reminded every single day is new. You get to start fresh. Because your sins have been separated from you as far as the east is from the west, that God remembers your sins no more; that if you confess your sins, God is faithful and just to forgive you of all your sins. But the wonderful thing about this reflection that we see in the scriptures, as it points us to all of eternity, is that eternity is a place of no new beginnings, because that new beginnings won't be necessary. It won't be necessary for you to start over and over again because you will be robed with splendor and glory. You will be perfected. You will be glorified and be made like Jesus Christ so that you will never do anything that you will be ashamed ashamed of. No sins to confess because all will be made right. Everything will be perfected. Sin will be completely eradicated. And I wonder what our lives might look like today if we reflected on that just a little bit more. If we looked at the mirror and spent a little less time reflecting on our personal sins. Yes, there is a place for that. The scriptures teaches us, commands us to examine ourselves. But don't do it to the neglect of remembering what you have to look forward to. Don't do it to the neglect of what Christ has made you to be today through His sacrifice on the cross. The psalm that has very little to do with us, and yet it has everything to do with us. Because I think the psalm is compelling us to worship God. Yes, it talks about man, it talks about you and I, but not to try to make man the center of the universe. It's not to try to make man or put man in this position that is high above God. but it's intended to get us to center our lives on the glory of God and living for his name. We have many reasons to worship God. We worship God because he is glorious, his glory is set above the heavens. Because of what his name reveals to us, we worship him. We worship God because of his interest in us, namely in the person of Jesus Christ, and we worship God because he's given man this dominion over all the earth, but also because this dominion that God had once intended man to exercise over the earth will be one day perfected. And we will wear the crown of honor and the robes of royalty because of our relationship with God through Jesus Christ. That's what we have to look forward to, and that is why we worship his great name. So let's pray. Father, we we are humbled before your presence. You have created us in your image. Lord, and even as you sustain all things, continuously working, you have not overlooked us. We've taken great interest in our lives, even in each one of us, in a unique and special way. You have loved us and sent your Son to die for us. Lord, this and so many other things makes you worthy of our worship. God, so despite what's going on in our lives, despite how our day started out, despite the the challenges that await us this week, God, help us by your Spirit to worship you, to see and savor your worth, and that we may rejoice in giving you glory in all of our days of our lives. Help us to open up your Scriptures, to see wonderful things about you in your Word, so that we may worship you.